Scripture reading for today, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, is found in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. Uh, There are a few Bibles in the few backs in front of you. You can feel free to grab that. And uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 1 is where we're going to be. You get to First and Second Timothy in your New Testament, and uh, then you'll find a short three-chapter book called Titus, page 965 in uh, the Pew Bible. Titus chapter 1. Well, I've entitled our sermon this morning, uh, Dealing with the Defiant, the Deceptive, and the Deviant. So once I get my earpiece in, then we'll be good to go. So I trust that you're there, Titus chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for the morning. We thank you for the chance to, to come and sit under your word. And I would ask that you would bless the teaching of your word, that your spirit would come. Father, in particular, as we learn about dealing with those in the church that are difficult to deal with, in particular, those who are espousing teachings and doctrine that are not according to Scripture, uh, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would protect us from this, and help us to understand what we should do in case it ever arises. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all God's people together said, amen. Well, this morning we find ourselves again in the book of Titus chapter 1. Uh, by way of brief uh, overview, Paul in chapter 1 is starting to reveal to us the three results of the three G's, right? So we've talked about grace, good works, and godliness. These are the major themes in the book of Titus. What does that look like in the life and at work in a local church? Well, last week we saw the first result, right, which is on your chart. We saw that a church that is filled with grace and godliness and good works, well, it results in the church being well-directed, verse 5. That is, it has qualified, appropriate elders directing the church. This week we're going to see two more results of the three Gs in the life of a local church. So when there's grace that leads to godliness and good works, not only is the church directed, but you'll also notice on the chart that a church is is stable, verses 10 through 12, and a church is healthy, verse 13. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we had uh, kind of an unpleasant experience, uh, although I guess it uh, is not as bad, uh, comparatively speaking, but uh, my my folks were in, which was a good thing. That wasn't the unpleasant thing, right? My mom and dad were in, and my sister, and we were outside much of the time because it was uh, kind of in that in-between, right, summer and fall. It was very pleasant, and uh, we had our own kids and my nieces, and we were just playing outside, enjoying the day. And uh, I, my dad and I were, were somewhere, maybe, I don't know, we were at the grocery store or something, and my wife calls me, and she says, I smell something funny in, in our garage. And I said, like the trash we forgot to empty out? And, he, and she said, no, it, it smells kind of like gas. And I said, okay, we need, we need to get home pretty quickly. And so dad and I drove home, and we started sniffing around, and we didn't really smell anything too strongly in the garage, but 
I could kind of get whiffs of it. So we decided to keep looking. We moved out into our back patio. And as we got closer to our back patio, the smell kind of increased a little bit, but it was kind of come and go. One minute you'd smell it, the next minute you wouldn't smell it. And so we kind of said, well, let's keep looking. And so we moved closer to the backyard where all the kids were playing. And uh, we got a, a big whiff of a, of a stronger smell. And we said, Something, something's going on. This is, this is a gas leak. And so we found a leak at the entry point uh, coming into our home there in the backyard. And so, uh, like you probably would, I immediately got on the phone. I looked up the phone number for the Amaran guy and uh, gave him a call. And I said, well, how, qu- how quickly can you get here? And it, it, uh, the, the person on the phone said, well, they usually are pretty prompt about these things. And I said, okay, well, we kind of live out in the middle of nowhere, right? And he's like, okay, no problem. And so I hang up, and uh, 25 minutes later, the Amarin guy arrives very quickly, very promptly, and he got right to work. Um, at the start of chapter 1, here in the book of Titus, starting in verse 10, Paul turns from his list of elder qualifications to describe a threat. He describes a very dangerous and even deadly threat that Titus and the potential elders there on the island of Crete faced. And the, the threat was, was that from within. It was not an external threat. It was an internal threat. And the threat that they faced was their own people, people who named the, ta- the name of Christ, were teaching false doctrine within the church. And they were doing so under the influence of unbelievers outside of the church. You could say, so to speak, that the theological air in the church at Crete smelled of foul doctrine. Something was adrift in the air, and Paul could smell it. And he, and he tells Titus, Titus, I want you to deal with this. This is dangerous. It is deadly. Heresy is adrift in the air. And just like the Amaran man came immediately to deal with my gas lake, so Titus is to, was to deal immediately with the heresy going on in the churches on the island of Crete so that the theological air could be purified, so to speak, and the church could be healthy again. So I see three major themes, if you want to know where we're going, three themes that emerge from this section in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. First of all, we're going to see several characteristics, several characteristics of false teaching. Paul is going to give us a list of about four things that characterized the false teaching in that church and can often characterize false teaching in our local church or any local church. So first of all, the characteristics, verses 10 through 13. Second of all, we're going to see two appropriate ways to counter, two appropriate ways to counter false teaching. That is, how should the leaders in the local church Respond. How should we counter these characteristics of false teaching? And then third, what's the underlying cause? What is at the root, oftentimes, of heresy adrift in the air in a local church? We'll see that in verses 14 through 15. So the characteristics, the counters, and then the cause. Well, I hope you're in your Bibles. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 10, as we begin to look at the characteristics of false teaching. I'm sure you have something like this in your house. You probably have a smoke alarm. You probably have several smoke alarms, right, in your home. Uh, If you have something like I do, I have a a kind of a dual alarm. It's a smoke alarm and a carbon dioxide detector, right? You probably have multiple uh, of these instruments in your home, and they're they're very helpful, right, because they look for specific things, right? They don't go off just at anything in the air, but they are trained, so to speak, programmed to identify particular things. And when they 
hear, when they sense those things, well, of course, it triggers an alarm that uh, can drive you crazy. I don't know about yours, but when mine goes off, it drives me crazy. I cannot stand it. It's loud and annoying, and I guess that's the point, right? It's supposed to wake you up. Well, I've, I've got a question for us. Do we know what to look for when it comes to detecting errant, unbiblical, even heretical teaching in the church? Do we know the characteristics? Do we know what to look for? Because Paul is going to give us four characteristics that should cause our heresy detectors, so to speak, to sound off, right? Broken into three categories. Paul is going to talk about the words of the false teachers in this section. He's going to talk about their motives. And then third, he's going to talk about their actions. He's going to say, these are what you should expect them to say. He's going to say, this is, what, this is their motive. This is, this is what you should look to motivate them, to drive them. And then thirdly, this is what their lifestyle might look like. So let's take a look, first of all, at the words of those teaching falsehood on the island of Crete. First of all, four characteristics. Look, take a look at verse 10. Paul begins by saying, for, for there are many, what? Rebellious people. There are many rebellious people. The first thing that characterizes the words of these false teachers is that they are rebellious. This describes a person who refuses to submit to church leadership, to the elders and the pastor on the matter of doctrine. And even more so than that, it describes a person who, re- who refuses to submit themselves to the word of God, rightly interpreted and rightly understood. You could say that these people were a law unto themselves, right? They rejected any authority. They themselves were the authority on the matter of what it was they were saying. Let me share with you a quick story on this, on this matter. It, this was several years ago. I was meeting with a pastor just for fellowship, and I wanted kind of him to be a mentor to me. He was a pastor down at Paxton, and he used to pastor, I believe it's the First Baptist Church in Paxton. His name is Bill Thompson. He's no longer there. He's since moved south. However, uh, kind of just met him randomly and said, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're close, and let's, let's get together. And uh, we, as we were meeting one day, I think it was probably for breakfast, he said, hey, Trey, I've, I've got to tell you about someone. And I said, okay. He said, well, let me tell you about this guy. And uh, he said, I'm not going to give you a name, but I just want to characterize him for you. There has been a man over the, over the past few weeks of our church who has not only started coming to our church, but actively being engaged in the life of the church. And I'm like, that's great. I said, he said, yeah, he's coming to Sunday school, and he's coming to church, and he's coming to small groups, and he's coming to Sunday night church. And I'm like, well, this is good. He's like, no, no, it's not good. And I said, well, well why not? And he said, well, uh, essentially what he's doing is he is um, rather vocal. And I said, well, that's not a bad thing. And he said, well, he is questioning uh, our interpretation of several key doctrines that the church holds. Now, it was a Baptist church, right? So they hold to the, the Baptist standard faith and message, right? And I said, well, does he, does he, does he agree with you? And he said, no. And he, he, he kind of listed five things where this guy was, was really causing quite a bit of a trouble, questioning his authority, questioning the Baptist church's authority. And I said, well, well what did you do? And I said, well, he said, well, at first I just kind of asked him to, well, you know, okay, you can disagree on that, but this is where we stand and this is what I think. And, and not only that, but a few of the views that you're talking about, well, they're they're kind of unbiblical, and the guy was very defensive, very angry. However, he kept coming to the church, and through the means of his Sunday school class, he was talking about how the pastor was wrong, talking about how the Baptist faith and message needed to be changed. He was causing division within the church, and ultimately, 
my pastor friend said, I had, to, I had to say, listen, you're welcome to stay, but you can't be doing what you're doing. And so the man chose to leave. And so he said, all of this to say, if there's a guy who, who shows up at your church and begins to do these kind of things, just beware. And I said, okay. So that was, let's just say that was a Monday. I go to the office, say like Wednesday or Thursday, and in strolls a gentleman who introduces himself as so-and-so, and he said, hey, can I talk to you about what your church believes? And I said, sure, we can talk about that. And then he strolled and he introduced himself. And within a minute, I knew that this was the gentleman who my friend was talking about because he said, uh, not the gentleman, but my friend, he said, this guy makes it his, his life goal to go to every church and to make them correct, so to speak, right? To, to, to have his way. And so we had a pleasant conversation. I told him all the areas that he was wrong, and I showed him from the Bible why, why, where he was wrong, and he refused to submit. He refused to believe it. I showed him from the scriptures, and uh, we had a good conversation, and thank God we haven't seen him again, right? Um, but this is the kind of guy that I think Titus is talking about. He is rebellious. Number two, his words are not only rebellious, but his words are empty. Notice, for there are many rebellious people, what? Full of, my translation says, meaningless talk. It could be translated empty, empty talk. The idea here is that they have lots to say. These kind of people typically are very vocal. They want to talk a lot. They think what they're saying is right, but typically it's not based on scripture. It's opinion, it's ideology, it's philosophy, or it's based upon tradition. It is meaningless talk. So a good question to ask someone in the course of a conversation is something like this. Where does the scripture teach that? Where do you see that in the scriptures? We always bring them back to the scriptures. Well, they were, their words were rebellious and empty. And number, number three, deceitful. Notice, full of meaningless talk and deception. That is, they speak as if they're presenting God's truth. In reality, what they're doing is presenting a lie, oftentimes intentionally. So they're rebellious, they're empty, they're deceitful words. And then number four, maybe most significantly, as seen in verse 11, they are heretical words. Notice, full of meaningless talk and deception because, verse 11 Paul says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. The word disrupting here literally means to overturn or to destroy or to ruin. It's strong language that shows us the dangerous consequences that, un, that heretical, unbiblical teaching can have on the, the life of the believer. The reason they ought not to teach what they were teaching is because it was opposed to the, to the clear teaching of Scripture. And so, friends, let me just apply this to you and I for a moment. How will you know what is true and what is not? How will you know what is heretical and what is not? How will you know if somebody is teaching the things that they ought not to teach if you yourselves don't know what the scriptures say? Me as an elder, as a pastor and elders, we are to protect you. We are to do that, absolutely. But it's your responsibility. How how will you know unless you are in the scriptures, unless you're hearing faithful teaching, both from me, hopefully, and from, from other faithful pastors and preachers? How will you evaluate the TV preacher when you turn on TBN? How will you evaluate that Christian, and I use that very loosely, author when you step into the Christian bookstore as to if they are faithful to the scriptures. Let me just give you a warning. When you walk into the Christian bookstore, just know every book in there is not necessarily Christian, okay? It may be in the Christian bookstore, but believe me, 
underpinning the books of many books that are in our Christian bookstores are nothing, nothing close to Christianity. So, friends, we've seen some characteristic of these people's words. They're rebellious, they're empty, they're deceitful, and they're heretical. Let's move now to their motives, looking at verse 11. We've seen their words, but what motivated these people? What often motivates false teaching to to spring up from within a church? Well, notice verse 11, the tail end. And it says, And that, they're saying things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Your translation may say sordid gain. So the motivation of these men who made up this malarkey was much like the motto of the character played by Cuba Gooding Jr. in the movie uh, Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's a movie about a sports agent and uh, he is, uh, has many agents, has many players, and he's whittled down to one, right? He's, he's down on his luck. He has one client and it's an NFL wide receiver whose character is played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Well, there's this scene in the show, and it's about 10 or 11 seconds we're going to show you, but it's kind of his, his motto, his life goal, right? Let's just play this clip, and we'll, you'll see where I'm coming from. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the motto. That's what these, these uh, false teachers were saying. Show me the money, right? That's what they were motivated by. They were teaching what they were teaching for the sake of dishonest gain. Friends, let me apply this to our lives just for a minute. In my humble opinion, one of the biggest dangers uh, to American Christianity today is what has been called the prosperity gospel. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Um, It's called other things, but that's what I call it. It's oftentimes associated with what is called the Word of Faith movement. I just want to give you some warnings. Friends, beware of ministries, preachers, teachers, writers, authors, speakers who are always asking you for money especially if they promise that God will somehow give you money in return exponentially if you donate to their ministries. Friends, beware of ministries that overemphasize money talk. Yes, the Bible talks about money, and we should too, but beware of ministries that talk about it incessantly, especially if they speak about our somehow ability to create it with our positive thinking or our words of faith that somehow money is just going to show up in our bank account. I want to give you a quick example of this. In March, just of this year, uh, one well-known prosperity preacher by the name of Creflo Dollar, no, I'm not making that up, his last name is Dollar, I don't know if it's, you know, is that his real last name? I have no idea, but it's appropriate, okay? Creflo Dollar, down in Dallas, I think, unfortunately, he requested this on his website, and I'll quote, they're asking for 200,000 people to commit to sow $300 or more, notice the language of sowing, $300 or more to help achieve our goal of purchasing the G650 airplane. Let me tell you a little bit about the G650 airplane. Did a little research. It, uh, it is a top-of-the-line luxury uh, private jet, essentially, and it comes in at a grand total of, are you ready, $65 million with a capital M. million. They continue to say, and I quote, we need your help to continue reaching a lost and dying world for the Lord of Jesus Christ. 
Apparently, you can't reach lost people flying coach on commercial airlines. Apparently, you just can't do that. I, I don't know. Um, so just be, be aware. We, we've seen Paul describe, we've seen him describe the words of these false teachers. We've seen him describe their motives. Thirdly, he describes their actions. Notice verse 12. Paul says, One of Crete's own prophets has said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Here Paul is quoting uh, a well-known philosopher by the name of Epimenides, who himself was a Cretan. So he is saying, uh, listen, one of your own guys, one of their own, right, characterizes, generally speaking, the, the people from Crete as liars, evil brutes, lazy, lazy gluttons. He essentially says, listen, um, you're dealing with liars, people who are lawless, people who are lazy, and people who are lustful. But other than that, they're a pretty good group, right? Um, That was supposed to be a joke, by the way. Thank you. So what we see is a progression here, and I I think that the the text merits it. A a progression that Chuck Swindoll uh, notices, and he says this, quote, False teachers' wrong words and hidden motives eventually are manifested with wrong deeds. I think we see a progression. We see their words. We see their motives. And then Finally, we're, we're going to see their lifestyle, right? We're going to see how that plays out in their everyday life. It makes sense to me. You could say theological laziness might lead to moral laxness, right? When you play fast and loose with the text, you're going to play fast and loose with your life. You could say it this way. Rejecting the theology of the Bible often leads to one rejecting the morality of the Bible, right? So not only must we beware of people's words and their motives, but, but also their lifestyle. We need to ask, is this person living by God's moral standards, right? Are they seeking to obey the Bible, or are they bending the rules for themselves, right? Are they giving themselves an out? So what we've seen in verses 10 through 13 are some characteristics of false teachers, but we move from that to the countering of them. So how, how is the local church, how are the elders, the leaders, how are they to deal with people from within who are characterized with these kind of characteristics? Well, we see two counters in verses 11 and 13. Notice at the very beginning of verse 11, first, it must be silenced. Paul says this, they must be silenced. Literally, it means to silence by stopping the mouth. That's what, that's what Paul says. They're talking in the... You need to shut their mouth. That's what Paul's saying. Literally, silence them by stopping their mouth. In other places, uh, not in the Bible, but in, in Greek literature, it's, the word is translated to muzzle. You know what a muzzle is, right? So we, I had a dog, and we've, I've talked about him before, uh, Cocker Spaniel, and uh, we uh, were going on my vacation. My, my family and I went on vacation, and we didn't want to take my dog, and so we boarded him at a boarding house. Um, never done it before. First experience for the dog at a boarding house. We get back after several days, and we go to pick up our precious little Dexter, and uh, he is muzzled, right? He's got this thing on his, and I'm like, oh, you poor baby, you evil people, right? How could you do this to my dog? And they, and, and they said, well, listen, he was barking incessantly all night long. He was whining and crying, and when we let him loose, he tried to bite another dog. So they said, we got to muzzle him. And I said, okay, that's reasonable, right? And so I took the muzzle off and, and freed my poor little Dexter, right? But that, we all know what a muzzle is, right? He couldn't whine. He couldn't bark. He couldn't make any noise. He was silenced, right? That's what Paul says that Titus and the elders are supposed to do to false teaching in the church. Put a muzzle on it. Similarly, believers in the church who are spreading wrong doctrine must be muzzled in a sense. Secondly, secondly, 
it must be rebuked. Take a look at verse 13. Paul says, this saying is true. He affirms what Epimenides says about the Cretan culture. This saying is true. Therefore, well, what are we supposed to do? Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply. Why? Well, we see, we see one reason, one intended result of this rebuke. So that they will be sound in the faith. So, first of all, it just has to stop. When there's false teaching going on, right? When there's heresy floating around the air of the church, the first job of the elder pastor is to silence it. But then there needs to be some personal rebuking. He says, rebuke them sharply. Later in chapter 3, verse 10, you can flip there if you want. It's on the screen. Later, he gives us a little more information as to what this looks like. Verse uh, 10, chapter 3, he says, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. So let's put this together. Putting it all together, we see that people who are teaching heresy in the church are to be confronted. That is, they are to be rebuked sharply. They are to be told to stop. That is, they must be silenced. And they are given notice once, twice if necessary. And and then if they persist, they should be subject to the removal of the fellowship of believers. I think that's what Paul means when he says, have nothing to do with them. Now, why? To what goal? To what purpose? Is it so that they might be cast out? Well, in a sense, yes, for the health of the church. But what about for them? Notice, so that they will be what? Sound in the faith. The goal is so that they might be theologically healthy. The goal is is not just so the church might be healthy, but that they might be healthy. I think Paul is talking about believers here, right? Because these are Christians who have an unhealthy faith in, in, in the sense that they don't understand the scriptures rightly and they're teaching other people wrongly, intentionally, right? And so they must be made healthy again. He's not talking about unbelievers here. I think he's talking about believers. They're sick in their faith and they need to be made healthy again. And so we've seen some characteristics of false teachers. We've seen two ways to counter them. Let's close our time by looking at verses 14 through 16 with the underlying cause. Oftentimes, what's the underlying cause of false teaching coming from the lips of believers in the local church? Well, it comes with the second goal of the rebuke. Notice, again, back in verse uh, 13, the saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. To what end? Number one, so that they will be sound in the faith. But number two, in verse 14, and so that they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So what's going on? Here I think we see the underlying cause of this false teaching in the church. And it was that, in my interpretation, believers were listening to, they were paying attention, they were giving heed to people outside of the church, particularly Jewish myths, number one, into merely human commands of, of notice, of those. There's a second group of people being described here, of those, literally some translations may say, of men who reject the truth. Here's what was going on. These Jewish Christians, what we see, notice uh, earlier in the text it said that, especially of the uncircumcision, these were Jewish Christians on the island of Crete, and they were paying attention to, they were getting their bad theology from unbelieving Jewish people, maybe family members, maybe somebody within their community on the island of Crete. We don't know. But they were being influenced. Notice someone had their ear so that they might not pay attention to men who reject the truth. 
Here, he speaks of a second group of people. And the second group of people he speaks to were unbelievers. And we see that because notice how he describes this second group of people in verses 15 and 16. He uses strong language that can only describe unbelievers. He says this, To the pure, all things are pure. What he means by that is that if you are a believer, um, then you are spiritually pure. And then everything is pure. You can eat Drink, right? There are, there are not these limits. As we get further into Titus, we're going to see some of the things that these false teachers were saying. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't eat this. And Paul is saying, listen, if you are made spiritually pure, then all of these things that the false teachers are saying not to do, then those things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, the unbeliever who is the source of this false teaching, nothing is pure. In fact, notice how he describes it. In fact, both their mind and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God. That certainly fits a description of the of a Jewish person in the first century. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They reject the person of Christ, their Messiah. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for anything good. And so what is the underlying cause? What was the underlying cause here? Well, it was believers, and there were unbelievers who had their ears, and they were feeding them things that were not biblical. And the Christians were taking that into the church and spreading the falsehood around. Well, it's a good thing that we never let the unbelieving world influence our theology today, right? Right? Or not so much. Just a few examples. Christian researcher, uh, researcher George Barna did a recent poll. He asked Americans who self-identified themselves as Christians what they believed. Here's just a, a few uh, illustrations. Number one, 22% of those who claimed to be Christians, disagreed that, and I quote, about God. Disagreed that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of the universe who rules the world today. Rather, choosing other descriptions about who God is, like everyone is God, or God is the realization of human potential. 22%, almost one-fourth of people who named the name of Christ, didn't get it right about who God was. That should be disturbing. Number two, more than one-fifth, more than one-fifth described... um, more than one-fifth, 22%, strongly agreed that, and I quote, strongly agreed that Jesus Christ sinned when he was on the earth. So we have 22% of the believers in this poll saying, yeah, Jesus was a good guy, but he wasn't perfect, right? There's a problem here. Uh, overall, 58% either strongly or somewhat strongly agreed that the Holy Spirit is, and I quote, a symbol of God's power or presence, but not actually a living person. So about 60%, Uh, either agreed or strongly uh, agreed that the Holy Spirit isn't a person. That's That's not a triune God, right? We're floating into heresy. Number four, only a slight majority of Christians, 55%, strongly agreed that the Bible is an accurate source of everything that it teaches. In other words, uh, 45% apparently of those polled didn't think that the Bible was accurate. We have a problem. So friends, here's the application. We must always ask what we believe and then more importantly, why is it that we believe that, right? Why do we believe what we believe? We must be careful because what happened on the island of Crete, unbelievers whispering into the ears of Christians, Friends, that happens to me, it happens to you, it happens through social media, it happens through all sorts of mediums. Uh, the world is whispering in our ear as well. And so we have, to, we have to be discerning and know the scriptures. 
So we have seen characteristics of false teachers. We've seen two ways to counter them. We have seen the cause. How did the story end? Well, we'll see in the coming weeks of Titus. But thankfully, my story of my gas leak ended well. The Amaran man came to my house very quickly in about 30 minutes. He very quickly got this cool little device that identified the source of the leak. And within minutes, he tightened a joint and he said, you're good to go. And it was about five minutes and he was gone. And we were very grateful that the dangerous uh, gas leak in my backyard was, was mitigated, had been silenced. Unfortunately, it doesn't always happen this way in the church, right? As heresy leaks sometimes go simply undetected. Sometimes, even worse, they are ignored to the peril, sometimes the eternal peril of congregations. And my prayer for you and for me is that we would always be able to spot the characteristics of false teaching, that we would be courageous enough to counter it, that we would be discerning enough to see its underlying cause, and that God would grant grace in our lives, that it would result in, in good works and godliness in our church, and that we would be directed, as we see in verse 5, that we would be stable in verses 10 through 12, and that we would be uh, a theologically healthy church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you see fit to give us warning about what false teaching looks like within our ranks, um, from those who are even our brothers and sisters who are gullible and often maybe misled, misinformed, uh, who, whose ear has been gained by a source of heresy. Lord, protect us. It is utterly important that what we think and say and believe is according to your word and that then that would manifest it itself in our lives and that we would teach a, a true and faithful gospel, that we would communicate that which is true and accurate about you and how we can have a relationship with you through the death and burial and resurrection of your son for our sins simply by faith, simply by trusting in what he has done in no means uh, by merit or by earning it and that we, because of that gospel, are being transformed that the Holy Spirit is living in us and moving in us and growing us towards holiness and towards good works. And so protect us, we pray. Keep us um, from error. And may we deal with those who are defiant and deceptive and deviant, both firmly and with grace, that they too might be healthy in their faith. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Amen.